Hey everyone, it's me, Rebecca. I'm currently on maternity leave, and while I'm away, we picked out some of our earlier episodes from the No Limits Vault so that you can get caught up and enjoy while I'm off. And just so you know, I pre-recorded this, so I actually am spending time with my baby right now. Remember, I was the only girl at any boardroom table I ever went to. Every business was owned by a man, usually second generation with a lot of bucks. I was like the scrappy, blue-collar girl that didn't know how to dress or talk coming into their world. They wrote me off. They thought I was going to be in and out. Adios, you know. I surprised them. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. The woman you're about to hear from is someone who has been and continues to be a trailblazer for women in business. She grew up in New Jersey with nine siblings and had worked 22 jobs by the time she was 23. It was around this time she quit her waitressing job, against the advice of her own mom, took a $1,000 loan, and eventually turned it into the largest real estate company in New York. Today, she's not only a best-selling author, but you can watch her on ABC's hit show, Shark Tank. Barbara Corcoran, welcome to No Limits. Happy to be here. Do you ever sit back and just think, how did all of this happen? I don't think about how did it all happen, because people are always asking me to tell me the story, and it's the only story I know, so I'm so tired of telling it. You are? So I don't try to think about it unless somebody's forcing me to say it. What are? What is a moment from the story that you haven't talked about at oh, this point? Wow, that's a great question. No one's asked. Probably, you know, a weird thing came to my head, but that's what this yeah. is about, right? I would say I just had that thought, so I'll say it, about my dad and at times when he would drink socially and he was not a nice drunk, Uh, He would speak to my mother with great disdain, and he adored my mother. They kissed in front of us. He was the love of her life, blah, blah, but he turned into a different man when he drank. And um, when he spoke to her with disdain, I felt rage. You You felt rage. And I also um, uh, felt rage in my career always, not when a woman would talk down to me or put me down or challenge me. But whenever there was a big businessman with power and when you put me down, it always brought out the best of me. I think I had practiced rage my whole life and I would make up my mind right then and there, I'll show you. And I think that had a lot to do with me doing very well and succeeding in a man's world. That is, wow, I wasn't I, I wasn't either. I mean, well, I didn't mean to be deep and how depressing is deep nowadays, but... Well, you asked me, and that was all that came to my head. I don't even know if I could come up with another one. (laughs) I respect you for sharing it. We've talked about your story before, the fact that you grew up in a home with lots of siblings. Nine. Small home, nine siblings, ten of you. The fact that you were turned down so many job opportunities along the way didn't work out the way that you thought they might. They were all experience in hindsight. All experience in hindsight. 22 jobs, to be exact, before I started my brokerage firm. (laughs) That's a lot of experience by the time you're 23. What kept you going? Uh, And those jobs? Oh, those jobs were great. I mean, there were menial jobs, playground supervisor, hot dog salesman, uh, credit call caller, uh, What did you do wrong as a hot dog salesperson? Um, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I had a boss who was a little abusive in that situation. You had to be a big man on campus. But you know what I learned from that? 
I learned that when I had dealt with other big men on campus later on, that I had seen it all and done it before, and I knew how to finesse about the whole thing. So you learn, you know? Um, I don't think I had a single job except a nurse's aide where I had to post temperature charts, and I was dyslexic, so I reversed numbers, and I thought I was killing the cancer patients. Whenever they mentioned Mrs. Smith was dead, I figured I had a hand in that because I had mixed up her numbers, which I'm sure wasn't the case. <laughs> but other than that one job, I really enjoyed the heck out of every job I ever had. They were all menial jobs, but they were always on my feet. There were things that didn't involve writing and reading, which is what I couldn't do, but they involved talking, and I really learned how to talk. I learned how to get along with people and talk and rely on that to get myself uh, a better tip. Uh, not a promotion, but at least a uh, continuation of the position. <laughs> you you really do talk to people from all walks of life mm-hmm. in this role. As a, In real estate, you talk to people from all walks of life. What's the secret? What's the thing that you know that makes you so good at that? Oh, now, now, you are a tough questioner. Now, that's another one I never heard. Well, sales are sales. That's a little different than day-to-day getting along with people. Uh, sales is getting along and speaking with people with an objective. The objective being you need to close a deal. You, know, you don't get paid in sales unless you close a deal. I think the genuine card is masterful in sales because I think everybody's a lot smarter than, than people generally give people credit for. I think people can sniff out the real deal, whether you're genuine or whether you have your self-interest. So for me in sales, I genuinely wanted to make sure they got the best they could get and that they were happy. And I think people pick up on that. I don't think you can fake it. I think you have a lot of acting that goes on sometimes in that business, but I think people see the difference. They're smart. And so they close themselves If you're really working toward making them happy, they're going to close themselves. Now, when you take it out of sales and you just say, what's the secret to getting along with people and speaking with people? Um, For me, I think it's that I I genuinely think everybody's equal. I mean, I I know that sounds like a a hokey kind of thing to say, but I get that from my mom because she treated everyone uh, exactly the same because she saw everybody the same. And I think everybody in my family, all 10 of us, came up with that kind of a upbringing. So I think if you treat people as though uh, they are exactly equal to you and that everybody has something to give and there's something, a treasure, a treasure in every person, uh, you know, for you, for example, I always point out the treasure right away when I see someone. Now, I've met you before, but if I had seen you for the first time, I would say you have the most warm, sparkling eyes I've ever seen, which is entirely true. That's not bull****. Right, Thanks, and you Barbara. would. Yeah, it does not feel good, but <laughs> it if does I, feel good. But if I said to you instead, "Oh my God, you have the best figure I've ever seen on a woman," you might say, "Yeah, bull. <laughs> yeah. So, and you have a great figure, but see, when it's genuine, you know, you know, it's sincere. Right? Yeah, I know yeah. that was a complete lie. Complete no, no, lie. you have a great I'm figure. Joking. I'm not knocking you, <laughs> but totally but joking, a lot of people Barbara. have great figures, right? So, going back yeah. to that that idea of treating everyone equal. Mm-hmm. And what interests me about that is now in the world that you're in, you're thrust into sort of a Hollywood world. Yeah, what a phony world that one is. Okay, so coming from that background and then being around that phoniness mm. and all these people who have these facades up. Well, uh, a funny thing happens when you become a mini celebrity, which I would say that I am as a result of having, having that lucky landing on Shark Tank. That's nothing but potluck, that that kind of thing really happens to you in life. Millions of people are trying to get an audition to do this or this. That actually came to me. So I feel like I cheated my way into that that seat in a way. You know, I didn't have to work my ass off for it. Well, you did. You had. You had the resume to back it up at that point. You had sold yeah. your company at that point, right, yep. mm-hmm. for millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You had created a successful real estate empire. Mm -hmm. But going back to this question of now you're on Mm -hmm. uh, the number one show, Mm -hmm. everybody, a lot of people Mm -hmm. are watching it. 
and you're around a lot of fakeness. Well, it's a fake world where everybody's kissing your ass and everybody uh, gives you importance that you don't deserve. For example, uh, there's many immediate benefits of having uh, some notoriety. I can call up or have my assistant call up any restaurant, and if there's no seat, they make a seat. Um, people have given me free merchandise in a store. Oh, please, take the blouse for free. What? Oh, th- let me give you this makeup line for free. People send me stuff. But, you know, uh, the danger to that is it could make you feel like you are different. It can start to make you feel like, whoa, I'm a big shot, All right. And so uh, what it, how it plays out on me is kind of weird because I feel like I'm forced to play the imposter. Like I'm playing this even my day-to-day life when people say, can I have a selfie? Oh, I, I watch it on Shark Tank, whatever. In my day to everywhere I go, you know, you don't escape that now. Um, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm playing or acting in my real life. You really can't get away with mm. it until you get home with your kids and you close the door at night. That's when you get away with it. They treat you the same. And they're going to bitch and complain about you not being a great <laughs> mom and what you're not doing for them, whatever, you know. So um, so you have to learn to uh, take the ingenuineness uh, for what it is and be okay with it. And I'm okay with it uh, because I can see from whence it comes. You know, uh, the, the best thing I ever heard addressing that from someone enormously world-renowned uh, is the guy who played Harry Potter. Uh, someone in an interview asked him, you know, um, how do you handle the fame that you found as a young kid and that continues with you? How does it not ruin your life? He says, easy. He said, I realized they could have put anybody in my seat and they would have been equally famous. And I thought, what a smart kid. And he's really balanced. And that's the truth with any of this. Anybody else could have landed there. It's such a baloney kind of a thing that you got to just keep your eye focused. What a what a nonsense thing. And then I see the comedy of it. I have that glint in my eye like, could you believe this? <laughs> <laughs> there, there have to be these pinch me moments. Do you remember what was there like a first moment where it dawned on you? It dawned on me. I was at a restaurant celebrating my son's, who's now 22. It was the first or second season of Shark Tank eight years ago or so. And I was celebrating whatever that birthday was, okay, with five or six relatives at a small round table in a local restaurant. And as we were singing happy birthday, a woman came up and said, I I just have to tell you about my business. Just a moment. I just have to tell you about She ruined the whole event. I'm like, holy crap, is this what I'm in for? She was a she was an early fan, you know. Fortunately, at that time, anyone else watching didn't know what she was talking about because no one was watching Shark Tank. Things changed after the second season. Yeah, really weird. You know, in a restroom in JFK Airport three weeks ago, the lady in the next stall was saying, "Are you Barbara from Shark Tank?" <laughs> I'm look. I'm talking to her legs. <laughs> But I saw the comedy paper, Barbara. No, she didn't ask for that. But I saw the comedy of that. Yeah, you must appreciate. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would imagine that your children, save for how you treat them, are living in a much different experience than the one that you grew up in. Oh, and I would imagine that it's important. They're rich kids. How do you balance that? And and is it important to you to give them a piece of whatever you experienced in your childhood. Here's a skinny on this one, right? You can't give a rich kid a piece of your poor experience, all right? I remember one time uh, my son, uh, Tommy, I probably should mention his name, he'll kill me, but say I had another son with a different name. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this kid I had once (laughs) uh, called me and asked if he could buy a pair of loafers on a Saturday. He was with his girlfriend in his teen years. I said, of course, and it's so nice for you to call and ask permission, Tommy. Very nice for you to call. I really appreciate that. Oh, of course, Mom, of course, Mom. He comes trotting in, 
couple of hours later with a high fashion bag, a brand that will remain nameless, that I knew those loafers at that time maybe sold for $600. When I saw that wow. bag, I almost killed them. You didn't ask if you could go to that store. You just said a pair of loafers. You misguided me. Blah, 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 blah. I was so rough on him. You'd swear that he had gone out and murdered someone, but I was really upset. His sense of value. And then I went on to him. You know, you don't have a sense of value. Those That means nothing. Do you know how hard I had to work to make that $600? You know, from my view, I thought I was teaching him a lesson. And he said, you know, Mom, I get it. I appreciate it. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but if you really wanted me to have your value, I shouldn't have grown up on Park Avenue with a maid. He didn't grow up with 10 kids in a two-bedroom flat, scrapping for everything, and yet I expected him to have an appreciation for that. You see, it's wrong. Okay, you, you, what The best I could do with my kids is realize they've gone to good schools, had all the help and luxury and best vacations of their entire life, and hope they remain nice and don't get phony over it. That's it. They're coming from a different platform. Rich kids do that. Educated kids do that than somebody who comes up from nothing. And you have to respect them for what they do with that advantage. And so that's what I try to do. You know, uh, you know, you could see I'm confused on that. It's a rough one, a rough question. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if you ask the question, I'm answering it. But um, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. You see? You know, one other thing um, that I often think about is how thankful I am that I had nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. All my parents wanted from each of us that we'd be nice people. That's not a big order. No pressure. I mean, I've worked with rich people my whole life building a trade in New York City in real estate, of course. And some of these kids are under such pressure to outdo their parents or measure up or be somebody or be the attorney the dad was or the grandfather was. I was acutely aware my whole career, like, I don't have to be nothing, man. I just have to be nice. That's not a big one. And being nice is fairly easy, right? You just stay honest. So um, you get a lot of gifts uh, when you have nothing that it looks like the rich kids got all the advantages, but they have a lot of disadvantages that you never had. Expectation is a monster on a kid's back. And parents do it without even thinking about it. They really do. And I've seen it again and again ruin a lot of good potentially good kids with chutzpah and hustle and really want to prove something. Uh, But against those expectations, it's a tough one. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've seen articles where you've talked about investing and wanting to invest in, in kids that grew up poor, people yeah. that grew up poor. So is that is that how you you feel at this point? Because what you were just describing yeah. sounds like you see the value in both backgrounds and it's really what the individual comes to be. Well, it is always what the individual is and comes to be. Um, the advantage uh, of me investing in someone who came from nothing is uh, that kid scrapped more coming up the ranks, okay? Anything he wanted of any value uh, monetarily, he had to do the paper out for, hustle, babysit, work on weekends, all right? The rich kid uh, went to lacrosse camp in the summer, you know, went to a nice camp. 
<laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I know I did it with my kids. I still do it. I have an eleven-year-old at home, uh, but uh, they're not. They're, they're not exposed to the same thing a poor kid is exposed to. They're not exposed to uh, trash on the street, uh, bad people trying to hustle you, uh, bullies. They're kind of protected from that to a large degree. And so they don't, uh, they don't have the same uh, tough skin as a privileged kid does. Now, the privileged kid that's gone and gotten his Harvard MBA has a different advantage. He can talk the language, do the thing. But what... When I'm investing, what I really want to do is I, ha- I want to have somebody who's great at rejection, uh, someone who gets smashed on the head is stupid enough to bounce back up and say, hit me again. That's really who I'm looking for. And, you know, the rich kid doesn't really have that opportunity at Harvard Business School. They're studying how you do it, but they're not really living how you do it. Whereas the poor kid, you can make the grand assumption he's seen a lot already when he steps into the tank. So that's why I tend to be biased toward that kind of a kid. I believe a little bit more easily. Isn't it terrible? I do have my prejudices, and it is toward the poor kid. (laughs) And also, I look for thankfulness. I know that sounds like a weird trait, but what I envision is I picture if I can make a huge success of this business, and we're sitting at a table 10 years from now, I'm picturing this, counting the gold because we just cashed out. Are they going to be happy with me (laughs) on what I did for them back 10 years ago? And I want someone who has the thankful gene. You know, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. And you want to know, I find that out in the due diligence process after I commit to a deal. If I find that I have hooked in with the wrong person who's not the least bit thank you, thankful, why would I want them in my life? Why would I want to help them day to day? Smart's nice, but thankful's a better, feels better than than smart on you. And so I need to have someone that I think is genuinely thankful. And what does that come down to? It generally comes down to uh, they have nice parents or one nice parent or one great grown-up in their life that made a difference that they learned from. It doesn't have to be your parents. But I'm always looking for that thankful gene. You know? When you look forward at what you want your life to be mm-hmm. from here on out, what do you see? Oh, one thing, health. Health. I'm 68 years old or something, uh, but I have the energy of a 22-year-old. You know, What I, do you drink? What do you eat? No, nothing. I, uh, and I, you were born this way. Just, I have my mother's energy. You know, she raised 10 kids as though it was breathing. Okay, She ran that household like a boot camp. Everything had its place. She was a doting mom as much as you can dote on 10 at once. Uh, she was a... a powerful role model. She was an optimist. I mean, um, so, you know, I got a lot of her in me. But one thing I got from her was the ability to work really, really hard. You know, I don't think she slept two hours a night. She was ironing through the night before they had clothes dryers, right? So I have her energy and her health, thank God. So what am I looking forward to? I'm hoping I could hit at least 110 with my health intact. All right. I have no pains, no joint muscle pain, nothing. I'm like, I feel like I'm in better shape than most of the young moms that I'm meeting in the morning when I take my 11 year old to school. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like do you feel pressure along the the Shark Tank lines that you've got this moment? Mm -hmm. It's lasted longer than 15 seconds, eight years. But you got to take advantage and you've got to build other businesses and come up with new ideas and make sure that while people are paying attention, you do something with it. Absolutely. But you have to realize it's a double header. That's what hooks you in. It's a drug. Yeah. It's called success. You get used to success. The last thing you want people to do is talk about what you did versus what you're doing. Okay. And then you layer on top of the success gene that has been nurtured 
by yourself in your body your whole life. You've run hard. You've succeeded. Now you're addicted to success. You throw on top of that this wacky TV gene of notoriety. You're an addict. You're addicted to notoriety and success. And so you're running like that gerbil in the cage. At times I stop and think to myself, okay, why am I really doing this? Mm -hmm. I don't have to do it. I have more money than I need to live. I have a great life. I'm not bored by life. I do a million things outside of work. But, you know, I'm addicted to it. I know it. That's how you answer that question. Why am I doing this? I'm addicted to it? I'm addicted to it, yes. But I also love it. I'm addicted to it because I really love it. And what really keeps me in it is fear of what would happen if I didn't have it. I'm not secure enough to step off that cliff and have a peak. You know, if I was doing yoga and I was really self-evaluating, I might have the stamina and confidence to maybe take a chance. I'm not going to go there. What if... What if I'm unhappy? What if I'm bored? What if I turn into an alcoholic? What? Those I, are I your what ifs. These are all my what ifs. That doesn't look like a pretty. I bet it. I bet it stays this gerbil running like hell in this in this world I'm in. You know. I, well, and, and I look at this world. You're you're one of the extreme examples of it because mm-hmm. you have the show and you had all this success and you're continuing on it and building out new companies. But anybody who's running a company now mm-hmm. has to manage at least some of this public persona because yes. you have social media. I see friends who are trying to start companies go wrong. They focus so much on the outward facing thing. They forget that the company mm-hmm. also needs to be managed, that there's the operation side of it. How do you balance? And especially with the entrepreneurs that you work with. How do you recommend they balance that in this day and age where people just want to see things, but sometimes what you see is not the reality? No. Uh, everybody wants to, wants to have and be appreciated for a public persona, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and it also takes focus, right? Uh, with my entrepreneurs that I work with, not that they listen to me. I give lots of advice. The good ones don't listen. That's a mark of a great entrepreneur. They do as they damn please, you know, just like I did. If I got advice, <laughs> yeah, great, great, great ideas. Let me do what I want to do, you know. But um, with those entrepreneurs, um, I, at least the advice I dole out because I have to give it to myself too all the time because it can sweep you up in that whole outward focus, is you have to really focus on doing what you do very, very well, know it better than anybody else, and nail it every time. Really prepare and over-prepare and over-prepare and pay attention to the inside people, the people close to you. Those are the people that uh, generally pay the price the fastest. It's people you surround yourself with when you're not focused on your work. And you know what happens? You lose the talent. I've done that in my life uh, when I built the Corcoran Group because I had over a thousand employees and I had a a team that I adored like they were my own children. In fact, everyone worked there. I thought of them as my child and I treated them the way my mother treated us. Adored them, do anything, kill for them, anything they needed. I was there for them. but uh, you have to really uh, remember that that's what makes you who you are. That's what attracted people to you. That's what made them willing to follow you off the cliff. Okay, stay with you in the bad times. Right, and you have to remember that that's the big Kahuna. The rest of the stuff is outward pressure. It's like peer pressure, basically, when you're back in high school to be cool. A lot of that's about being cool. When I assess what a public persona does for my various businesses, the truth of the matter is I can't really quantify it. I know it helps, but that keeps me careful as to not to spend too much time or throw too much money at that thing. What I really have to do is do what I'm actually doing for a living very well. 
And I, and I think that's prudent for almost everybody, but it's hard to resist that peer pressure. It's like we're all shadow boxing. Can't miss that. Can't miss that. So I was in Central Park uh, yesterday morning before school with my daughter, Kate, uh, because we had 20 minutes to get the Dunkin' Donut, get to the park, so we're just like within a half a block. And we're in that big meadow up in the 90s, running like hell around the meadow. I was pretending I was catching I was almost ready to die. I'm not that good in shape. She's only 11. <laughs> she gets to the top of a rock. The sun is perfect. Perfectly on her face. She's got a bright orange sweatshirt on. I thought, what a photo. I said, stay right there, Kate. Stay right there. I got to take a picture. But then I didn't. I felt so proud of myself because it would have ruined the fluidity of a lousy 15 minutes together. I thought, what a selfie. I'll post it on social media in the park for early morning. There were daffodils behind. It was a beautiful shot. I could recognize a great shot, but I was so thankful I didn't ruin it. You know, but I felt like guilty in a way of my work that I didn't freeze it and share it with my people who would love to have enjoyed it. No. Mm -hmm. And so I think you wrestle. I mean, that's a uh, that's an example, maybe a stupid example. No, I think I respect it. Yeah. So you wrestle with that, I think, all the time. Public, personal, uh, public focused on your work, that public pull is enormous today and I don't think justifies its worth in more instances than not my own feeling. <laughs> you seem like somebody who wants that you would like to help people. If Always, you can help yes. people, you want to help Why people. Why not? So how do you handle that when people pitch you either bad ideas or ideas you know you just really don't have the time to work on? Well, I, I don't have the time to work on anything outside of Shark Tank. That's mm. the truth, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I've created systems. You know, systems, I learned from my mother, can solve a lot of stuff. If she could put all the boys' socks in one drawer, all blue, navy, blue, all one size, and all the girls in another drawer, all white, all one size— and skin that cat every morning, I could certainly create systems uh, for my business. So what I have is I immediately say, here's how you get on Shark Tank. Boom, I've memorized mm -hmm. that site. Okay. Uh, if they want to pitch me, I'll say, send it to my office. I'll be happy to forward it to Shark Tank. I immediately say I'm precluded from listening to the pitch because of my contract with ABC. I can't get involved with other things. Oh, I'm sorry. But let me tell you what I can do if you blah, 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 blah. So I have an answer. And so you can help people, but of course, keep your life intact. I mean, I'd have to multiply myself times 10 people uh, to listen to all the pitches that want to come at me. You know, but thankfully, I have that contract with ABC. A while back now, it's been a little longer than a while, but there was a comment that you made about thinking like a man. Mm, yeah. in business, Always. that that's successful. And there were mixed reactions to oh, that I didn't comment. That. Yep. Do you think that that's still the case, that if you're a woman in business, you have to think like a man? No. How I use that thinking is like this, all right? I'm going to uh, – growing up, remember, I was the only girl at any boardroom table I ever went to. Uh, when I started uh, my Corgan Group business, every business was owned by a man, usually second generation with a lot of bucks, okay? I was like a – I was like this – the scrappy blue collar girl that didn't know how to dress or talk coming into their world. They wrote me off. They thought I was going to be in and out. Adios, you know. I surprised them by coming the, becoming their largest rival. But that kind of treatment helped me become that largest rival. You know, it got me going, man. Okay. But what I would do is if I was in a situation and the men were rah, 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 talking, any situation, and I'm trying to say something and they're riding over me, <clears throat> I would be quiet. Because I had a smaller voice and I couldn't be heard. That even happened to me in the first, second season of Shark Tank, all over and over. I would just be mowed over every time I spoke up. Before Lori came out, I had another woman. It was harder even then than when Lori came aboard. But what I would always do after a couple of years in the business is I would say, what would a man do? 
I'd say it to myself, what would a man do? And you know what? Whether I knew what I was talking about or not, I'd, I'd start talking <laughs> because that's what men do. They don't have to have the perfect answer perfectly. I'll tell you what I think. And so I, I didn't have a man's voice, but up went my hand. Excuse me, excuse me. I'll tell you what I think. I had to, for me, to shore myself up. That's how I used it for me, to push myself forward. What would a man do? Another perfect instance where I would do amazing work in a team situation for an outside developer or something, my creative juices, my ideas on what to do on the marketing, my redevelopment of the job site. It was mostly me, but there were men. I would find earlier in my career, the men would take credit for it. My boss would Mm -hmm. take credit. The men would take credit for it. Okay. So then I learned, what would a man do? I would start taking credit when I was halfway there (laughs) because that's what guys do. I know so many women and Mm -hmm. men in workplaces who feel like someone else took credit for their work. All the time. What do you do in that situation? How do you get the credit you deserve? You, uh, You speak up, basically, is what you do. You speak up to who's supposed to know about it. I just want to let you know, even though Joe mentioned that that was my, that project, okay, mm-hmm. let's say you haven't uh, barked up, you haven't spoken out for yourself, which is really the right thing to do. Take the credit as you're doing it, okay? But let's say you forgot, and now Joe just took the credit. You go to your boss, say, I appreciate the fact that Joe really loved the project that we worked on together. I just want you to know that in that project, are you where I did 80% of the work? I want to make sure you know that because I adored doing the project. I love working for you. I would do it again equally well in anything else you want to assign me. Assign me something new. There you have it. You just asked for a quasi uh, promotion going in a good direction, more responsibility, and you took the damn credit back. Mm -hmm. But you know what? A guy would do that. Even guys are more territorial by nature. And I don't like stereotyping, but the men I've worked with in my life are territorial. Get on their territory, they'll fight. Women will share territory. They'll even give you their territory if it's better for the team, which is wonderful for managing people and building an empire. That was my style. Give everybody the credit and let everybody participate and you get the best out of people. But if that were not the case, in many instances, I would say, what would a guy do? Right? And I would claim credit for being on top of the mount when I was only halfway up there because that's what guys do. Because I know I'm going to get to the top. But if I wait till I get to the top, some other guy is going to claim the credit tomorrow morning, Tuesday's meeting. <laughs> so true. Yeah. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn on this journey? For me, uh, the lesson uh, that, I, that took me the longest to learn is that I'm not stupid. Because if you grow up with any kind of a problem in school, uh, children are defined by how well they can read or write and how uh, good they are academically. And so as a child, you you collect a lot of your self-esteem in a group situation, which happens in the classroom. So for me, I left the classroom thinking I was stupid because I just couldn't learn. I mean, I could learn other things, but I couldn't read or write. That's a biggie, right? Math and decoding words were problematic. And so um, I think it took me probably till I was 35 or 40 to actually acknowledge that I think I'm probably pretty smart and probably have a decent IQ. And probably am uh, smart in a lot of ways, okay? But it took a lot of years for me to replace those basic insecurities 
of thinking that I would fail because I wasn't smart, okay? But you know what? Now I realize it probably motivated me more than any single thing in my life, so I'm thankful for even that. And it's easy for me to say because I've had a successful career and a successful life, so it's easy to look back and say, oh, thank God I had that pain in the classroom being asked to read out loud where I wanted to fall on the floor day after day and played sick in the morning and stuck my thermometer in my mother's coffee so I could stay home because I could confront school every day. That's painful for a kid. But now that I have a happy ending, it's like, oh, I'm happy that happened because I had all that time in school to daydream and become creative, and and now I had to like really work hard to get over that, so I worked double hard of everybody else. So I could say it now, but uh, and I mean it now. All right, uh, but that was the if you ask what the hardest to get over, that took the longest. Yeah, for sure. And it's yeah. interesting you say thirty five forty because already at this point mm-hmm. you were building. Your real estate empire. I had a successful business, but you know what? I always felt deep inside that I had somehow gotten so many lucky breaks and it could never happen again. I was always thinking, oh, my God, how did I get away with this? Almost like, if they really know how stupid I am, I'll never get this job. You know, <laughs> I think that's the secret of almost all successful people. They feel that it's that imposter, that insecurity, mm. that feeling of... Even if you believe that you're smart and good at what you do, you it's feel an emotional like, thing. Yeah. Emotion is a big, big player in your being, your emotion, not your logic, but your emotion. Yeah. Feeling secure is a big one or insecure, as we just said, is a big one for the better. It makes you run hard. I also ask everybody what the yeah. worst advice they ever received was. Uh, What's the worst advice you've ever received? Uh, real advice advice. Uh, I would have to credit my mother with that, which is a shame because she gave me 50 million pounds of great advice my entire life. Okay, but the one piece she was wrong on was when I was uh, waitressing, maybe my third waitress job. I was 23, and I told her I was going to quit my job and start a real estate business. My boyfriend was willing to give me $1,000 to start it, and her sage advice was with Barbara. How many dozens of jobs have you had? She exaggerated. It was not quite two dozen. She said, why don't you just stay with this job for a while and build your resume? I mean, it, you need to say that you've stayed with things to get a good job. You really should stay with it. And you can always do that later. If I hadn't jumped out of that counter that week and started the business the next week, who knows if I would have ever started a business? Who knows where I would have gotten $1,000. And who knows who would even give me an idea? He'd be great in real estate sales. That's what Ramon Simone from the Basque Country told me, even though he's really from 145th Street in Harlem, I found out later on. And his real name was Ray Simon. It wasn't Ramon Simone, but he was a good marketer. But <laughs> Wait, who's Ramon Simone? That was my business partner at my first uh, Corcoran Simone company until he ran away with my secretary. And that's what started me on Corcoran Group. So if I had listened to my mother, build my resume, how logical... Who knows? So that was really lousy advice. But fortunately, I was of the age that I thought my mother was stupid by then, as we all do at some (laughs) juncture. And I ignored her and just jumped in Ramon Simone's car and went to New York City. (laughs) Sometimes the worst advice does come from people who are giving it for the best reason. They're trying to protect you. Or they think that they're protecting you. And, and, you know, a lot of the time when I ask that question, people come up with bad advice from people who are out to get them. Oh, but yeah. And that's possible, too. But that's easier but, to spot because, you know, they're the enemy. But your own mom, you really feel like a creep if you ignore her. Yeah. <laughs> well, Barbara Corcoran, this conversation, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoy you. And I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. 
If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, Michelle Boncardo, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And coming up on the next episode of No Limits... I had no money. I was kind of floating. And I was like, shouldn't I have done this at like 23? I don't know if you well, felt yeah, that Well, yeah. Well, they tell you, so, you know, in your 20s, you, like I gave myself a shot. And that kind of dark cloud started to settle in. I gave myself a shot, but did I ever really try? And now I'm 30 and eventually that plan B has to come in. But now I'm at the point where it's go time. My friends and colleagues, Sarah Haynes and Jedediah Bila from The View. Until then, take care. Be well. <laughs>